Hey, unfuckers around the globe. It was an exciting weekend receiving notifications that so many unfuckers took advantage of the flash sale on coffee that we released in honor of Fuck Milton Friedman Day. I hope everyone was able to celebrate this global holiday by praying to the altar of neoliberalism and free markets with a coupon. In part one of our Amazon episodes, by the way, we laid the groundwork to explain how Amazon went from plucky online bookseller to the second largest American company, third in the world, and soon to be the biggest ever. We examined how its hometown of Seattle serves as a proxy for its corporate worldview. Extract what you can from what built you in service of revenue and profit. Its relationship to its workforce and how it's steadily and strategically gathered influence by focusing on the power structures within the Beltway. So in part two this weekend, we're going to dig a little deeper into the company itself, where it makes its money and how it makes its money. Past acquisitions that give us some insight into future plans and just how it touches on every aspect of the economy. No matter how hard one might try to evade the influence of Amazon, like 99 dialing out and breaking up with her Amazon accounts and trying to order from everywhere else, it's still nearly inescapable at this point. And we'll touch on how it's been able to avoid any attempts to break it up and the one area that it might be tamed in the coming years. All fun stuff. If everything goes according to plan, we're also going to be dropping our very first installment of Phone a Friend on Monday of next week. Don't hold me to that date, but we are trying very hard to make sure that we drop it at that moment. We're allowing a few days to really get it right, but we think that the unfucking audience is really going to appreciate it. But before that, obviously, it's time to hear from all of you. So, 99. Yeah, so in show notes today, we'll review some of the feedback we received from part one, plus some really great responses to our family episode that dropped on Friday. We were lucky enough to all be together for Fuck Milton Friedman Day, and it was nice to relax in the studio with many faces. I think we even mentioned how it was the first time since we started that we've all been able to be together in the studio, so that was pretty special for us. So let's start with some emails, and I think the perfect segue comes from Corey S., who wrote in and said, I've been fortunate enough to have never worked for Amazon, but I've worked at a Target food distribution center, and depending on what job you have, can be absolutely grueling on your feet. 10 plus miles a day was pretty common. Let me know if you ever want to do a deep dive into the hell that is Walmart. A lot of what Amazon is doing looks very familiar to the Sam Walton playbook. I did a stint there during college and actually worked my way into management until I finally escaped. I know where some of the bodies are buried. I like that a lot. There are a lot of parallels between the companies, and it's interesting to think that Amazon is supplanting so much of what Walmart has been able to do, but Walmart is not exactly going down easily. They're going down with a fight and also is still the biggest company in the world. So I think it's worthwhile at some point to put eyes on their company and to try to evaluate what their expansion plans are. Walmart's been in the game also a lot longer than people have realized. So it would be interesting to unpack that. Thank you for that email. Now, Brian M said, would love to hear a deeper dive on the intersectionality between racism and economic policy, even further than previous racism episodes, how racism continues to entrench an already entrenched neoliberal ethos. Brian recommended that we add the sum of us, what racism costs everyone, and how we can prosper together to our bookshop list. So we will do that, and we thank him for the recommendation. Brian, we'll get there for sure, but as far as a deeper dive into this intersectionality, I'm wondering if maybe that's just something that we keep as part of a larger ongoing narrative, now that we have set the table with our Economics of Racism episode, we have another comment coming up shortly that I think ties into this as well. 
I was reviewing our numbers recently, actually, and it was really excited to see that that episode, the Economics of Racism episode, was the second most downloaded thus far behind only the Fuck Milton Friedman episode. So I know the topic is something that definitely resonates with our audience and for good reason. I just think that it now that we have set the table, like we did with our culture cancel episode and a couple of others, we can more easily integrate the larger themes from those shows into the ongoing narratives as we kind of compound our research and our understanding of neoliberalism and, you know, how America is fucked. So all good stuff there. Thank you, Brian M., for sending that in. And uh, back to you, 99. So we have a fun one from our friend bookstore, Kim, who said she was speaking with someone running for office in Vermont as a Republican. Kim said, he brought up Milton Friedman. Shocking. Because of you, I was able to speak to him articulately and without rancor. I suggested he read Stephanie Kelton's book. He came back to talk to me three times during the event I was at to continue the conversation. I have to say, having the knowledge to discuss issues with him made me feel incredibly powerful. So I love the without rancor piece, because that's one of the things that you can... One of the benefits of really having your stuff down and your facts down and having a really good baseline understanding of, and the knowledge that you know we research together is being able to hear somebody when they're speaking and not respond emotionally because that's where the rancor comes. It's like when you have like, you know that they're wrong or you know that like their perspective is maybe misinformed or ill-informed or they're just coming at it from a different perspective that you've got the answer to. And sometimes you don't know how to articulate it and you're just like, well, it's because racism is bad, stupid. And you just want to, ah. but when you have all of these facts together at your fingertips and you're able to, you know, be the Oscar from the office, actually, it takes a lot of that emotion out of it and I think allows you subconsciously to actually meet people where they are while they're saying that thing because you can automatically spot, oh, you're there in your journey. Okay, let me let you finish. And then you come back at them with the, I hear you. What's interesting is that if you look at X, Y, and Z, you begin to develop kind of a deeper understanding and, and you can come at it more empathetically. So I love that Kim said that. And it pretty much embodies what this is all about. I need to work on that. <laughs> not um, <laughs> de not delivering things emotionally with <laughs> anger. <laughs> you don't. You just leak. I don't even mean that way. I'm just like, fuck you. I think you've come a long way. Oh, yeah? I do. <laughs> Thank I you. really do. Okay. I really do. <laughs> and we'll see if some of our listeners test that today. <laughs> Linda P. did a callback to our student debt episode and asked about whether there is any research on exactly how those who have paid off their student debt feel about forgiveness for the next generation of debt holders. So she said, is the idea that those of us who paid off our debt are against debt forgiveness just one of those made up myths? Like that an increase in minimum wage hurts low wage workers? I worked when I was in undergrad and grad school, also had loans, paid them off, and I want current debt to be forgiven. I know lots, scientific term, she says, of other people in my situation who feel the same. There are things happening in the current job market, like gig work, that are horrifying, etc., and so on, you know. So, Linda, I, I can say this much. I don't really trust a lot of the polling data out there. I've seen a lot of it, and I think it really depends on how you ask the question and pose the situation. I think it is fair to say that the Janine Pieros of the world represent a pretty fair number of people who think that the whole idea is unfair. And like the Brookings information that we put in that podcast, I, I don't love the Brookings take 
that it should be means tested or the New York Times take that it should be means tested. The Fox wing thinks it's a horrible idea just altogether. The progressive wing wants to see it all go away, but hasn't, to my knowledge, put forward a comprehensive plan that would deal with it from this moment forward. So I love that you fall into the forgiveness camp and don't point the finger at the next generation. My ultimate takeaway from that episode, which is where I really want to keep reframing it, is that we're still all mostly missing the larger structural narrative that student debt was misconceived of from the outset, and that we need a smarter, more rational plan moving forward that treats our population as the investment and not the degree as the investment. It's a very subtle shift in viewpoints with a huge difference in our approach. Okay, so moving off of student debt for a second, now we're gonna actually test 99's empathetic response to something. We have an email that is in response to the quick discussion that we had in either show notes or post-show musings about reparations. Yeah, so Daryl is posing a tricky question. Daryl is a 58-year-old white male recovering conservative gun owner and hunter. Daryl seems to be responding to the reparations question like you said. And he said, quote, I'm listening to you right now and you were discussing a little bit on reparations. And I agree we fuck many peoples as a nation and we and we have and still do and it needs to stop. I don't believe cash reparations to be an answer. Where do you start and stop it? Most groups of people have been conquered and enslaved at one time or another in history. Tribes in North America and Africa did it to each other. My point is we now know it's wrong and it needs to stop. Right, so one of his concluding thoughts was, it's, it's kind of a, a classic trope, the I'm all for a hand up, but not a handout, not a something framed as a reparation. And that's all good. And I think this is a really good question that Daryl poses because it strikes at something that is a really tricky and sticky situation for a lot of people to have a productive dialogue about it. And that's why I appreciate that Daryl framed it in that way and was really honest about his background and viewpoint, which he did not have to put in, by the way. So as a conservative or a recovering conservative, as a gun owner who believes in gun control and uses guns to hunt and all these, he's, sent, he's sending us a, a picture of a person who is working through these different concepts and ideas and is willing to evolve on them. And I think that's fair to put that out there. But even strip all of that away, it is a very pitched question in our society. How do you deal with the centuries of disenfranchisement, of economic punishment, and all of the things that came along with our racial relations in this country and our forms of oppression. So it's a really good quality discussion for us to have. And pursuant to what Bookstore Kim was saying, it's okay for us to take all of that in, level set a little bit, and then offer some really productive counterpoints without emotion, because that's, I think, how you get to a good place. So we can't be afraid of the word reparations when we're discussing policy. However, I am in agreement that reparations is a non-starter as a general concept. I don't love the implications, by the way, of native or African enslavement as though it's a normalized historical fact. So we're talking about conquest and systematic oppression or annihilation of groups based on ethnicity, race, or religion, right? There's a difference between warring factions who engage in wartime and warlike activities over territory, trade, goods, or any other power, power dynamic, right? But then there's the conquest and enslavement aspect of this. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about Native peoples in this country 
And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the black community in this country. They're not the same and they shouldn't be viewed in the same prism. So I've made my case, for example, for a pilot campaign in native territories, which in my mind are more politically viable. So I'm not saying that it's more responsible or ethical to do that first, but I'm saying it's more politically viable for a number of reasons. So let's break through all of the polite veil, right? And address the real issue at hand, which is the subject of reparations for black people in this country. First of all, definitely go back and listen to the economics of racism episode that we did to understand the scope of the issue, right? You have to understand the Jim Crow era. You have to understand the mass incarceration era. Then you have to incorporate these ideas and themes together to build a complete narrative of the systemic economic oppression of black people in this country. Only then can we begin to build a policy framework to best support mobility and economic development and brainstorm ways to make such policy measures politically viable. Again, there's having the conversation about reparations and then there's coming up with a politically viable economic framework that allows an entire community that has been systemically and systematically oppressed and subjugated to participate in upward mobility. It sounds like a lot of mumbo jumbo, but when you listen to all of those ideas together and you can build that comprehensive framework of knowledge, you can realize that there have been historically and still remain systemic and systematic levers of oppression within our structure and our culture and our economy that still to this day prevent access to mobility. And it's okay to talk about that. And if the reparations word is too much, that's okay. I get that it can be a bridge too far. I believe we can talk about reparations with respect to native communities because there it is so physically and visibly apparent that these people were systematically almost annihilated and certainly oppressed. It's just, we have reservation territories. These are essentially concentration camps for a particular group of people in this country. So it's so much easier to paint that broad policy picture and say, this needs to be fixed and there are ways for us to do it. Plus there are barriers to being able to do that because of the reservation system. So to me, again, from a policy perspective, that's more obvious. And I think you can have the quote reparations conversation. When we talk about the black community in this country, it gets a lot more nuanced because of the forced assimilation that occurred from day one post-Civil War and the failures thereafter, starting with the Jim Crow policy era, moving into the mass incarceration era, and that continues today in much more subtle ways, but very real ways that prevent economic mobility for black people in this country. We, we talk about the exception to the rule, the people who have made it through and become a success that are black people in this country. And we can point to Barack Obama was president. You know, aren't we in the post-racial era? And you you look at other you know prominent black figures that were able to succeed in what is largely considered the domain of the powerful white man in this country. So surely if they made it through, that is available for everybody else. It's not. But that only makes sense if you study it 
and you put it all in context. So anyway, there's a lot there. It's a really good question. I personally appreciate how it was posed because Daryl didn't include any of the softer edges to it. He just sort of said like, hey, this is my journey. I'm here right now in my journey. And I think reparations are stupid. Like, let's just make everything better going forward. That's a like a really reasonable starting point for anybody. When you start pulling the layers back, you realize, well, oh, there's more work to be done to undergird the past wrongs if the future is going to be normalized for people. You can't just snap your fingers and say, starting today, everybody has the same opportunities going forward. But it takes a long time to understand why. So we have to do the work together. My suggestion is if you're in Daryl's camp, which is totally rational, totally reasonable, is to start with our economics of racism. And from there, there are a number of resources that I think are really valuable. So we've talked about the two main books, The Color of Money and The Color of Law, that we referenced in that episode. We talked about Michelle Alexander's work to really sort of conceptualize and understand the mass incarceration era. And then from there, you can really do a deep and more nuanced dive into race and economics in this country. And it is, if you can be dispassionate about it, it's really fascinating. When you're passionate about it, it's maddening and it's really troubling. But we can't fix going forward until we all kind of do that work together. And I think that's why things like critical race theory are so difficult for us to talk about in this country is because we're missing so much context. And we just, it's like the white community writ large in this country just wants to like click its heels and make all that past stuff go away saying, well, that wasn't me. That might have been my ancestors, but I'm a different person and I see things differently. Okay, but it still doesn't explain why things still are the way they are. And it's okay to not be butthurt over the reasons why by just getting a little education. It's all good. So thank you for the question. Much appreciated. And speaking of education, we have an update from unfucker Cynthia G., who said, you asked for a follow-up on the Red Wine and Blue Troublemaker training, and here it is. First off, this is a legitimate group. Basically, a regular housewife got mad enough to start a Facebook group, and it took off from there. There were over 2,000 attendees from all over the country, some of them men, but mostly women from Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. The reason for this is they are targeting these four critical key states to make sure that Democrats come out to vote in large numbers. So, a summary. If unfuckers want to join in on something, this is a good place to start. They have other subgroups that focus on single issues like fighting book bans. These are more nationally focused. The troublemakers training is hyper-focused on forced days because frankly, we can't afford to lose these at this point. There is no cost for joining these groups, but donations are asked for. I didn't feel any undue pressure to join in or make a donation. For the people in deep red states, this might be an option. If you can't make a change in your state, perhaps you can help others out in a purple state. Offer what skills you have to other groups. The goal is to get more progressives into the Senate and state legislatures. So thank you for that, Cynthia. I'm glad the meeting turned out to be worthwhile and we're super appreciative for the update. And I'm going to link that group and the website and show notes again for other unfuckers who are interested in joining. Yeah, and just a quick note on that 99. Best of the Left, their most recent episode as of our recording, it dropped over the weekend, is titled No One Supports the Economic Interests of Rural America. So this is a, it's now a burgeoning area of research which I think is really important, is how exactly Democrats lost touch with rural America, why populism 
works there, whether it's the Bernie brand or it's the Trump brand of populism. And a lot of it has to do with how the major parties have been so out of touch simply with the economic interests of rural America. This kind of strikes at the heart of like, these are the areas that we can't cede any ground, but we've got a lot of work to do in order to be able to reclaim the mantle of it. And a lot of it is just listening, getting involved. So when you look at the areas we're talking about, Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, yes, we know them as swing states. And she's talking about not ceding the ground there, totally legitimate. More of those states are rural than they are urban centers where the populations are swelling and growing. So it's important for us to understand what's happening there. That best of the left episode is a really good starting point because there's a lot of people that have been doing you know, a lot of thinking about this and a lot of research into it to understand why that might be. And the people that are proposing ideas, concepts, and painting a picture of rural America that is something other than the farmer that we need to really understand about the life, the culture, and the economic viability of these regions that should then make it up into troublemaking groups because that's how you really start to connect with people. So really good stuff. Now, speaking about rural, Marianne M. very nicely threw a little bit of shade about West Virginia toward us in a loving way by responding to our musings about whether or not out-of-staters would attend WVU, West Virginia University. So 99 had brought up how she knew people that had gone there. And I was like, what? Why the fuck would anybody outside of West Virginia go there? And she's like, why are you so stupid? And I was like, I don't know, I guess because I'm from New York. Anyway, here's what Marianne had to say. And buckle up because my response to it is very short and it's kind of meaningless, but her email is so fantastic that it really does deserve the full stage. I pared it down a little bit, but I tried to leave the essence of it. So here goes. Contrary to the assumption that you articulated during show notes, a lot of people who go to WVU are not from West Virginia, the majority actually, 54%. Why? Partly because WVU gets the kind of public support that all state schools should get, making it very inexpensive even for out-of-state students. As a first-generation college student from Pittsburgh in 1978, I had exactly $1,500 in the bank, which was exactly what tuition was at WVU at the time. WVU was also my first exposure to the left, the Communist Party, and the Socialist Workers' Party specifically, whose members came to West Virginia to work in and organize in the mines. And then there were the independent leftists, who I was more drawn to, many of whom were from New York, as 99 attested to. I learned a lot from them about politics, activism, and how to eat well. They served me my first not-overcooked vegetables. The political science and history departments also leaned left, and my understanding of the United States grew as a result of their tutelage. Eventually, I went on to work as a journalist, a communications director for several labor unions, and then I served six years in the Obama administration. There, I never met another WVU graduate, even though the school was a scant 210 miles from D.C. I was surrounded by graduates of Ivy League schools and elite liberal arts colleges, who were decidedly not first-generation college students. Morgantown, West Virginia is where I learned how to be a class analysis-based progressive, and I'm grateful to all my teachers there, from the beer-drinking, coal-mining Trotskyists to the radical labor history professors. So what's at the root of your diss of WVU? I won't presume, but I invite you to entertain the question. <laughs> oh, Marianne. How I love this fucking email. 
So to the last question, you entertaining the question of what's at the root of my dis of West Virginia? I dis all things that are not New York. I particularly dis things from New Jersey, as we know. But I do hold a special looking down my nose place in my heart for all things Southern because I'm an asshole from New York. I think I also, I probably brought some, not aggression, but probably was also shady. I don't remember exactly, but I think the accepted narrative is that it's just a party school, that it's easy to get into, and therefore we think it's bad, but... Yeah, fair. Yeah. Or not fair. Yeah. Right? I'm not saying those are true. I'm just saying that's, you know, so I apologize for judging your school. So I I apologize for nothing. I apologize for being offhanded, perhaps, but I will continue to sneer at the South and basically anything that isn't New York. But on a serious note, my big takeaway here is that during Marianne's tenure in the Obama administration, there wasn't another WVU grad. So if ever there was a teachable moment for the Democratic Party, and I'm including myself in this as a progressive, this is it. I mean, I'm in the weeds, spoiler alert, on a Jimmy Carter episode. No specific timetable for that, by the way. And one of the things that really struck me about it is how many outsiders he brought to the White House and how difficult their time among the D.C. liberal elites was. So this has been a problem in the Democratic Party for a long time. And now it's really coming to bite Democrats in the ass. So Obama was, as a candidate and then as a president, was an anomaly. He was bigger than the Democratic Party, and no bench really developed behind him. And we know that now, right? And while he might have famously admonished Democrats for becoming, quote, latte-sipping coastal elites on his way out, the truth is he was as much a part of that problem as anyone else was. Democrats used to mean working class. West Virginia is an iconic working class state because of its mineral richness, right? So today we're so far removed from that idea and that concept of the true working class that it, it's difficult to even remember a time that the idea of the Democratic Party was a stand-in for the working class party. We're decades and decades past that and there is more truth to the fact that we are finally now these asshole coastal elites like me looking down my nose at all things Southern. So I'm willing to concede that I have been a dick when it comes to the South, but I'm probably going to continue to do it because it's part of me. But I will not give up the ghost on blaming everything on New Jersey. Forget about it. Now, let's let's get out of the country for a second and head uh, below the border and talk to our friend Elena S. 99, what do we got? Yeah, so our last email for today is from Elena, who said, Your episode on the indigenous schools is just the tip of the iceberg. And when truth be known, the devastation will be much greater than that which has been revealed in Canada. Please keep up the research and keep us informed. The discrimination and effort to eliminate indigenous language has also, as you know, been perpetrated against the Mexican-American community. In Mexico, we have 68 recognized indigenous languages, and efforts are being made that these languages should not be lost because they are part of our cultural heritage. In the United States, taking into consideration all indigenous languages there, there are only 330,000 native speakers, and a third as many in Canada. The genocide has been almost complete. A heavy email. I don't know if I have much to say about it, but just thank you for that perspective. 
So yeah, that's it for emails. And let's head over to social and start with Dan G on Facebook, who said, I'm sorry I missed FMF Day on the 10th, but I was here in spirit. Thank you for highlighting this vile dementor of the economy and ripping off his tattered cloak to expose the bloodless shell of a man who single-handedly sucked the happiness and hope of the American dream for so many people and classes. Come next year, we should have contests and prizes for the best artwork, poetry, prose, or whatever creative representation that best illuminates the destruction this ghoulish snollygoster has unleashed. Just an idea for community building around a common cause. Keep up the great work. Also, I respect that you wish to stay anonymous and keep it about the message, so I'll picture you in my own way, you beautiful people, you. And Danji sent a portrait in of the three of us. I was so blown away by this. Yeah. You had a handlebar mustache. Yep. <laughs> I think I did say, did I? I think I said you had a handlebar mustache once as a joke and blue hair. Yeah. So that's right, too. Yeah. Yeah. You looked sad. You yeah, looked. That's accurate. <laughs> you looked. Um, Solemn. Yeah, solemn, but with an edge. It was pretty. I, I thought it was. I thought it was a pretty cool depiction. And Manny was just like yelling and it's screaming. A bunch of faces. Right? A bunch of faces. Manny yeah, faces. Well, Manny faces. Yeah. Like yelling, getting after it, and and it was just. I, I don't know. I I mean. You looked like an extra in There Will Be Blood, in the most play way. Yeah. <laughs> I guess why I was so blown away is because I love creative people. I love talented people and people interpreting our show in different ways and representing it artistically, like the project work that Bobby McDee has been doing with a number of people, or who was the listener that did anime memes? Progressive waifu. I think I I said it wrong last time. Sorry. So waifu. Right. So there's this. And Will Watkins, remember he sent in that beautiful one? Hold for it. I am William Wallace. <laughs> I set myself up. I can hear it in my head and I know it's coming in afterwards. I love it. Will Watkins did what? That illustration of it had our album art in the background. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, so freaking cool. Yeah. So we have, we have some like things that are happening around it. And it's just whenever I see stuff like that, like I, I wish I could do it. I think that it's sort of it's like half envy, but it's just so neat that it's inspired by some of the things that we're talking about. So I thought it was really, really cool. And it's like, that's kind of, yeah, that's how we should look, right? Like, I get it. It was it was beautiful. Thank you for doing that, Dan. That was really awesome. Where can people see that, by the way? How it do we get that Facebook. out there? It was on Facebook. On Facebook? Facebook yeah. where, where do they, uh, hmm. In the comments. We can probably add something on the website, like a gallery of fan art, if people are Ooh. okay with it. We will try to put up a gallery, I guess. We'll try to build that out. I don't know, this summer, maybe. We'll build the gallery on the site. I don't want to hold anybody's feet to the fire here in the studio sitting right next to me, but possible? Yeah, it should be pretty easy. Neat. Jim M. said, enjoyed hearing your team chatting in the studio. Jim, we enjoyed doing it, believe me. Always enjoy Newark references from Manny Faces as I went to high school and grad school in downtown Newark. He must have stories about his transition to Atlanta. Oh, don't get him started. Does he have stories? Anyway, like ordering a Reuben sandwich and having it made on a hamburger bun. Is that a thing that happens in Atlanta? That's terrible. An actual experience on my first trip to Atlanta, Jim says. So yeah, Manny, I'm sure you'll be able to uh, weigh in here on your experience transitioning to Atlanta from Newark. Uh, Yeah, shouts to Brick City. I lived in Newark for about five years uh, just before moving to the Atlanta area. Too much to go into now. A lot of I didn't get the Reuben one. I believe I was really confused whether I should call a hero, a sub, a hoagie, 
down here. Like I didn't know which. And then they, they I used them all, and they looked at me and was like, "You mean sandwich?" <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, <laughs> sure." I have toads now. I wasn't used to toads growing up in New York area. And then now my backyard has toads and they're all super cute. And my dog is like, oh, toads. And I'm like, look, you have little friends. And then I looked them up and I found out that if your dog licks the toad, it'll go to hospital and die. So no, no, not your friends. There's orange wasps of some kind. I don't know what that's all about. There's new pollen. So all these years, if you like, you finally built up tolerance to your allergies in the northern hemisphere of the United States. Now it's just starting from scratch. So that's a lot of fun. And uh, we're close enough to Atlanta, uh, you know, city proper to get there and do what we got to do. But we're a little bit on the outskirts. So it's, you know, a little bit less automobiles doing donuts and intersection-y where we are. So that's kind of cool. But Atlanta is actually a really nice, nice town. A lot of good stuff happening. Obviously, a huge hip-hop history and scene and artistic stuff going on. Uh, shouts to uh, my daughter, Katara. Uh, she's doing a lot of work uh, in the in the fashion scene out here, doing some video styling. And it's just some cool stuff happening in Atlanta. So um, I'm kind of glad I'm here, but I'm trying to be bi-coastal. I was just in New York doing a that, that Innocence Project show. I'll be back a couple times during the summer. So I miss New York, but I'm, you know, we're cool here too. So yeah. And Newark was a central character, if I'm not mistaken, in a Newsbeat show a long time ago. If my memory serves, there is an activist named Larry Hamm, who is Newark-based, who is a really, really incredible figure. Do you remember that episode? Yes, I'm getting a nod from 99. Sorry. No, I had coffee in my mouth. Fair. <laughs> but yes. So yeah, Newark is, uh, was, I know, a central character in Newsbeat for a little bit with Larry Hamm, and I'm sure M Manny has many stories. Many stories. Many stories. <laughs> uh, that's true. By the way, the episode was called Why We Riot. It was actually Newsbeat's first major award-winning episode. It won the 2018 New York Press Club Journalism Podcast of the Year, and it focused on the history of civil unrest and rebellion in the United States. It featured uh, luminaries such as Dr. Cornell West, Rosa Clemente, and yes, uh, Larry Hamm from the People's Organization for Progress, which is based in uh, Newark, New Jersey. Uh, and uh, Larry Hamm, of course, grew up in Newark during the times of the um, the Newark uprising. So it was a really fascinating episode. Do check it out. Look up Newsbeat wherever you get podcasts. Newsbeat, two words, one love. And uh, check out that Why We Riot episode. So take us over to the uh, Twitters. Just generally, a lot of unfuckers were participating in Fuck Milton Friedman Day and blasting out the FMF hashtag. And our goal for next year is to get it trending. That's a big, cool goal. I think we could do it. I wonder what it takes. I looked at the hashtag on Twitter and the latest, however many, were all people tweeting for us. So, Do you think that... No, I never think. Elon Musk is going to actually take over Twitter? No. Me neither. Absolutely not. Do you think if he did that he would ban all shitty references to Milton Friedman? Probably doesn't even know who he is. I will say, if he takes over, I don't want to be on Twitter anymore as a platform. I know you'll you'll disagree with me. Me? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. Okay. Keeping that recording. That's why I'm hedging. Gotta think it through. I don't want to be under his rule. That's so disingenuous of you. Is it? You drive a Tesla. <laughs> yes, I work for I work Most for Tesla. Most expensive model. Yeah, I own you, his flamethrower that you, he was selling. Exactly, right? You're I'm a really prime active. super fan. So on and on and on and on. Yeah, right? you're right. Didn't you actually even secure a seat on the next rocket launch? On yes. his private rocket launch? 
right? Yes. You dropped like like 600 grand on that ticket. Mm-hmm. That's why I have no money, as I alluded to in a previous episode. Very, very disingenuous. I'm not going to pay off my student loans if I can go to space. It's such a logical... So I'm not disagreeing with you. I mean, that's, I mean, obvious, right? Yeah, well, what I have else to, would you do with your I millions? I have to but... virtue signal to our unfuckers and get <laughs> off Twitter. On Instagram, there's some shit going on, which is cool. At Luege, L-Wedge, or at L-W-E-G-E, said, thanks for making my Friday. Continually learn and grow from your work. I truly appreciate this entire team. Only criticism. Oh, boy. Here we go. No wonder you pulled this clip in. The only criticism is there was not enough 99. Her voice and words genuinely make me happy. Well, L-Wedge, how were you going to hear so much from 99 when there were two white men in the room to mansplain everything? Why would why would there be room for her? I mean, she's lucky she got a word in. Am I right? Don't answer that. Let me tell you how you think right now. Tell me. I was going to say, I'm not going to say it's true, but I'm not not going to say it's true. I was definitely consciously pointing a lot of stuff at Manny because of having the opportunity of having him in the studio. Plus, you're shy and retiring and really not all that opinionated. (laughs) I stopped at retiring. I was like, I can get behind shy, but am I retiring? Are you sending me to retirement? No. Oh. No, but you have the money, as we've clearly established. No, I gave it away. You just do this out of love. Oh, on your ticket to space. Yeah. Mm. I want to retire right now. Okay. All right. Where what would kind you... of package can you give me? All right. Uh, a really, really good package. Where would you go? That I have to know. That's that's important. I don't think I have to tell you legally. No, you don't. I also legally don't have to you know, offer you a package. You once told me you take care of your employees. I do my best. I thought you were going to hold hold to that. I do my best. I'm going to go to West Virginia and do penance. Brilliant. Well, the Punisher Wagon said the evolution of the show has been great, though I do miss the palate cleanser skits in the middle of the lessons. Punisher Wagon, are you the only one? I know I always ask this because of my insecurities about it because I'm not a comedic writer. I did have a lot of fun putting them together. I know that Manny would always roll his eyes, but then he would just bring the heat in producing them. He likes to rise to the challenge. He likes to complain about the challenge, but then he loves to rise to the occasion. And but the and work I'm comfortable he did, saying that. Oh, 100%. But the work he did on those skits was like... Of course. I mean, just lights out. It was the production value of the skits that I think actually made them so funny. And every once in a while, I try to interject one of our characters. But the further away we get from the skits, the weirder those voices become. Like, all of a sudden, you just start speaking as Matt Gates butthead and it's like what the fuck is even going on yeah right I think other people like them I think it's just equally it's very divisive it's a yes or a no there's no in between maybe the answer is to just put them at the end or put them in show notes or put them in uh, something no, else he said the palate cleanser yeah it's palate cleanser. I like the right. I like when you brought it in, into the coffee break because mm. I think it's a good way to sell our shit right and also have some fun hmm okay and you can experiment with new people and then throw them away if they don't work. Any way to bring Cory Booker back into it? <laughs> Is he vegan too or just Rosario? I don't know. I think they're vegans together. How about I don't even think they live together. What are you talking about? They love each other. I don't other. even think they're a couple. No, I like that? them as a couple. You do? Yes. So silly. He, I told you he was on Drag Race at some point. It was very weird because okay. he's technically cousins with RuPaul. What? They found out through one of those like... TV shows that celebrities, they'll like look at their ancestry, 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 
And I told you Nancy Pelosi was on Drag Race this week. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah. It was disgusting. You slacked me that. That was no good. I was really fucking mad. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> me and my roommate were screaming. I was flipping her off. And I was like, fuck you, you fucking bitch. <laughs> but everyone was like, oh, my God, she's wearing like five-inch heels. Like, she's so cool. And I was like, shut up. It was just, what are you doing here? And she, I forgot she's been on before. For real? Yeah. AOC's been on. That was great. We loved her. That's awesome. Because she's a huge fan. Mm. Like, get out of here, Nancy Pelosi, wearing a fucking yellow suit, yellow <laughs> anal bead necklace. That's what people are saying. I'm just, mm. I was very mad knowing what I know. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you're, you're going to go on the show about gay people, but then you're going to, you know, fucking support your incumbents <laughs> who, ah. okay. Sorry. I got it out of my system. That's all good. That's all good. We feel you. Old lady. Flatliner74 said, it was a wonderful, light conversation. I appreciate the crew so much. Thank you for teaching me so much. You are welcome, and we appreciate you for listening, for writing to us, and for being part of the unfucking community. So, with social done, 99, take us over to Substack and see what's going on there. Yeah, we had one comment on our Amazon episode from Curiouser, who said, great episode on how Amazon is even worse than we realized. There's a bill in Congress with some momentum to rein them in that sounds good. Supported by organizations I like and opposed by the Chamber of Commerce. S2992 American Innovation and Choice Online. Or in-house S3816 American Choice and Innovation Online. Good stuff, curiouser. We'll have to check that out for before next week. Indeed. We got some eyebrow raises from Max. I don't know if that was a hint. Yes, you did. Okay. So that's it for the comment portion of Shoutouts, baby. So let's get into coffee donations because we had a ton of fucking support this week. Just blowing my mind. Mary Ellen is now a member. You're all wonderful. I listen when I can. Would like to support further. But for now, here's my small monthly contribution and thanks for your unfucking efforts. Mary Ellen, your listenership is enough. It's amazing. So thank you for becoming a member as well. Believe me, it all goes to bringing out as much as we possibly can to make this show as great as we possibly can. So thank you for that. Antproof Case is now a member. For your Amazon focus, this is a great app that you can choose to shop indigenous, LGBTQ+, etc. businesses while steering clear of the Amazon machine as much as you can. Shop.app. What do we know about that, 99? Nothing. Great. We will look into that. If anybody else wants to go on it and go to shop.app, Give us your feedback on it, and you think we can kind of get around the Amazon machine? Great. I dig it. And Proof Case, thank you for your membership. means the world. Jamie L. is also now a member. I absolutely love you guys. Darth Redhead is now a member. Said, I appreciate your points of view. Keep up the great podcast. Thank you, Darth Redhead. And Maddie Girl is now a member. I need to have a quick aside to Maddie Girl. Maddie Girl, I love you. You have better things to spend your money on than old Uncle Max over here, okay? Are you sure it's the right person? What if it's just someone else? Because I had a little exchange with Maddie Girl okay. about how she should be okay. saving up her money for the future. Just checking. Because I was like, what if this is just some girl out there who's like, what the fuck? Uncle Max? <laughs> they don't know you. Yeah. weird. <laughs> no, Maddie Girl, I do. I love you. Thank you for doing that. That meant the world to me. So. Well... Our friend, Goat, is now a member. No, That's no, awesome. No word. He just became a member. How incredible After I that? berated him. I mean, you, you two have history now. Yeah. 
And Goat sent in a nice long email we have to get to next week. Okay. Yeah, we got to okay. read through it. There were a lot of good points in there, so I wanted to make sure we we had the time. Well, but Goat's goat. a smart motherfucker. I mean, there's a, there was a lot there, but I, I love that you have that history and you have that experience now. This is like, a, this is a, an earned relationship. Yeah. I don't know if we're friends or frenemies. Goat, you let me know. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure you're friends. Mm, I just want to make sure. You never know. Okay. So Zektar, the unholy one, is now a member. <laughs> dig the show, dig the vibe. 99 saying the C word cracked me up. Yep, that's me. Never gets old. And then Jim Q is now a member. Been listening for about a year after dipping my toe in with the FMF episode. After that, I was hooked. I listened to every episode until I was current. I figured I've been freeloading for long enough. There are no yeah, freeloaders said here, it before, Jim Q. We'll say it again. We're happy to do the work and just beyond thrilled Except that you would become a member. I love when you give us money. No, no, it's Because I'm a greedy little... Mm, should I do it? it no, should it, I lean into that stereotype? No, not at all. Not at <laughs> I all. felt guilty doing it. Norman SR is also now a member saying, fucking love it. And and bookstore Kim. Kim. Stop. She loves you. I know. I love her too, but she just she keeps... I hope we're sending like customers to her. Like if that's at all legitimately possible... Or when we have millions and millions of listeners, surely we'll have thousands of Vermonters and we'll be able to send them there, right? Yeah. Bookstore Kim bought three coffees. Max, these are for you, for show notes. Oh, wow. I fucking loved it when you needed and didn't have your glasses. Oh, God. And the guy next door, that guy, he was special. I loved, by the way, the Manny treatment at the end of that episode. That made me legitimately LOL, as the kids would say, or as no kid ever said. Yes. Also... Dirt Road Revival answers several of the questions asked by folks in the last show notes. Why are red states so much poorer than blue and what actions can we take? So many times I just want to jump in on the conversation during show notes. You are my people and you are definitely our people, Bookstore Kim. And to close it out, Andy L. Just dropping a hammer, bought three coffees. Boom, just like that. Putting a tip in the tip jar, appreciated something. So we appreciate you, Andy L. Now, before we close out today, 99, it looks like our call for reviews, and by our call, I mean your call for reviews, paid some dividends here. What do we got? Yeah, so Bobby McDee left a review and said this podcast is the best of its type, no question. If you don't listen to UNFTR, you are doing yourself a disservice and impoverishing society by willfully choosing ignorance. I don't want to reveal too much, not my place to do so, but just so all of the American unfuckers know... Bobby McDee is stateside right now and will be for the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to reveal or disclose his location, but just know if you felt a disturbance in the force, it's because we've got the heart of Ireland here on our shores. So watch out. Print out a picture and then walk around and every stranger you see be like, Bobby, Let's see what happens. Maybe we'll make a few friends. So then Scattershot said, this is an insightful, well-researched deep dive into what led us to the current mess we're in. The team has a great way of tying historical threads together so you can see how different people and events tie together to form unholy alliances. Sometimes dark, sometimes lighthearted. The show is never dull. And I always leave a podcast knowing more than I did at the beginning. Very cool. Thank you, Scattershot. I am Ben Thomas. (laughs) I love that handle. Just announcing, I am Ben Thomas. Well, I am Ben Thomas said, I started listening to UNFTR about three weeks ago. It came as a recommendation from a friend. You know, word of mouth is the best way to transmit anything. And I started with the latest episode at the time and I was hooked. Cool. I've now started to binge from the beginning. And I will say that's the best way of listening. Even cooler. 
It's fun to hear what has come true and piece together what was happening at the time. I can't wait to catch up in real time and then feel sad as I only get to listen to one at a time. Great work and keep it up. I am Ben Thomas. I appreciate that so much. What a, what a rousing endorsement for the show. Cool. <laughs> Neat. Anyway, Rick in Oregon said, I knew our society was a mess, but listening to Max and 99 break down the issues, it really opens my eyes and mind to how to help fix the messes. Keep up the great work. Hashtag FMF. And then lastly, JD20 said this podcast is like the political science class you should have gotten in school, taught by your smartest friends. It's a perfect mix of well-sourced facts mixed with language and attitude that might make a teamster blush. Whew. All really great stuff. Thank you, everybody, for the support, for the reviews, for loving the show, for challenging us, you know, taking us to task when we need to be taken to task, and for being part of the unfucking community, and for the artwork. We'll try to get that up there. I think that's a really cool and important thing for us to be able to share art related to the show. And to Manny, so sad that you're not here, but great to have you back behind the glass. We appreciate you. To 99, we have a lot of good stuff ahead of us over the next couple of weeks before we head to our collective show break in the beginning of August. Max is going on vacation and he didn't invite me. Isn't that rude? I did invite you. You didn't. I didn't? No. You didn't get that? No. I sent it in the mail. That's you know, why. You kids these days, they yeah. just don't check their mailboxes. It's like, how dare you take a trip with your family and not ask me to come? I, I don't understand. I sent you an engraved invitation the okay. way that you prefer to be invited to things. Well, you didn't have a scroll and like the guy with the trumpet to announce it, so I didn't. I did not I because you're still, you know, you're very COVID weary. That's true. Okay. Well, we are going to take a break in the beginning of August. We're going to come back just ready to scream from the mountaintops on how to fix everything in this here country of ours as we head into the mess of the midterms. But until then, we got some really cool shit coming your way. So look out for it. And uh, we'll see you this weekend with part two of Amazon, the unfulfillment company. <laughs>